Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. Okay, well, good morning to comrades on the west coast of America and good evening to comrades in the Indian subcontinent. Yeah, and uh, thank you for spending your Sunday at a a talk on science. (laughs) Yeah, so as uh, as James uh, remarked, uh, this year uh, represents the 200th birthday of the uh, the great collaborator of Karl Marx, Frederick Engels. And uh, Engels himself has somewhat unfairly been regarded as having played a second fiddle to Marx. This is in no small part down to the modesty of the man himself. He was keen to downplay his own role and uh, to, to highlight the, uh, the incomparable role and the irreplaceable role of his comrades, Karl Marx. But whilst uh, Marx spent the greater part of his life on his great treatise, Capital, uh, analysing the, the dynamics of the capitalist mode of production, uh, Engels wrote works applying the same fundamental method as Karl Marx, but applying them to a, a whole variety of fields. He wrote the uh, the Peasant War in Germany after the, uh, the the defeat of the 1848 revolution in Germany. He, he made an analysis of the, the revolution in Germany uh, historically. He wrote a work on the uh, a very famous work called The Origins of the Family, Private Property and the State on the uh, the transition from class society from classless to class society. And uh, he, he started preparation on a work on uh, the history of Ireland. Unfortunately, he didn't get very uh, far past the, uh, the preparatory material in the first chapters. But he also wrote a number of books uh, laying out clearly the philosophy of Marxism. And uh, he took a particular interest in the natural sciences. Uh, writings as, uh, such as uh, Anti-During, which uh, I've got a copy here you can get from well-read books. Um, and also the, the unfinished manuscript, which... Uh, James mentioned called the dialectics of nature and in this sorry and uh, in this book Engels explains that for for him and Marx uh, dialectics wasn't something they simply invented it wasn't something that they sucked out of their thumbs rather it was something to be discovered through nature Engels describes it uh, dialectics in the following way in dialectics of nature he said It is uh, from the history of nature and human society that the laws of dialectics are abstracted. For they are nothing nothing but the most general laws of these two aspects of historical development, as well as of thought itself. So uh, Engels made no distinction uh, between the the laws governing human thought or logic and the laws of nature as such. Uh, For us as materialists, obviously, uh, we see that all that we say that all that exists is matter in motion and thought and mind. is just one of the modes of of motion of matter, basically. So human society and the human mind are just part of this material universe. And the uh, the, they relate to the rest of nature as the part relates to the whole. And so for us as as, as Marxists, the laws governing uh, human society and the laws governing uh, the human mind are merely a specific case, actually, of the more general laws of nature and of the motion of of matter in motion. Well, in elaborating things in this way, some of the detractors from Marxism, or or some of Engels' detractors in particular, think that Engels made a mistake 
they think that Marx was correct to apply the dialectical methods to uh, human society and human thinking, but that by extending it to nature, Engels basically turned Marxism into a dogma, into a, uh, an article of faith. So I'm thinking of so-called Marxists such as Althusser and Lukács in this category. And so you have the, the good Marx and the bad Engels, and the bad Engels was the res responsible, basically, for Stalinism and the turning of Marxism into a dogma. But besides, of course, uh, being an idealist explanation for the rise of Stalinism, it wasn't a bad idea which led to the rise of Stalinism. Stalinism. It, was the, uh, it was the isolation of the Russian Revolution and its surrounding by hostile imperialist powers. This, this whole point of view is a retreat, basically, from materialism to the point of view of dualism, that the uh, dialectics applies to, to thought, but that these laws have nothing to do with the general laws of motion of matter. It's, the two are separate, the laws of thought, the laws of matter. It's a, it's a retreat from materialism. So as Marxists, we're by no means indifferent to the, uh, the, philosoph uh, the philosophical underpinnings, if you like, of science and the philosophical struggles that take place in the sciences in one field after another. And in the whole of human history, science and philosophy themselves have been key battlegrounds in the class struggle. This was something that Engels in particular keenly understood. And for the revolutionary bourgeoisie, science was one of the, uh, one of the weapons with which they actually fought the old feudal system. It was necessary for this revolutionary bourgeois class not only to, to smash the dictatorships of the, uh, the feudal monarchies, but also to smash the spiritual dictatorship of the church, which dominated the minds of the masses of, of, of Europe. Ten minutes gone. And this struggle took place over a number of stages, which roughly corresponded to the, the stages of development of the bourgeoisie as a class and of their struggle within feudal society and against feudalism. So first of all, with the rise of merchant capital, you had a, a much greater increase in the in international commerce. And at the same time, of course, greater exchange of intellectual information as well with the rise of the, the earliest merchant capitalists. And it was in the same centuries, in the 12th and 13th centuries, that you saw the, uh, the foundation of a powerful federation of trading cities, the Hanseatic League in northern Europe. Uh, and you saw the, uh, the foundation of the first uh, Italian city-states in the south of Europe. Uh, but at the same time, it was at this time that you saw the great chartered universities beginning to spring up and demand a certain amount of elbow room for themselves within the context of feudal society and a certain right to exercise a, a certain freedom of thought. And here's, here's an example of the dialectic in practice of how things turn into their opposites, because these universities were originally formed as schools of the, uh, attached to the, the monasteries of Europe. So their original function was precisely to, check, to train a new generation of clergymen who were to be the ideological support, basically, uh, of, the, uh, of, of the feudal system. And, the just, and they were to, to justify and defend the feudal system. But with the growing in, enrichment of the bourgeois class, they began to take on more and more students from this rising bourgeois class. And you had a, a series of other developments which uh, spurred on the development of, uh, of science towards the end of the Middle Ages. You had the, uh, the Reconquista in Spain and the Crusades in the Levant, which basically revealed to Christian Europe that they stood on a far lower cultural level than the Islamic world. So whilst in, in Western Europe, ancient Greek as a language had been almost entirely forgotten and the, uh, you know, the medieval clergymen had written the lives of saints over the, uh, the great manuscripts of uh, ancient Greek knowledge, this knowledge had been preserved amongst the Muslims and now for the first time was being brought back to Europe. You had, new tra you had translations of the ancient Greek texts from the Arabic. 
And you also had uh, refugees fleeing the fall of Byzantium, bringing the original ancient Greek text back with them. And this opened up a whole new world. Uh, of, of, a whole new vista was opened up to the, the thinking uh, peoples of, uh, uh, within uh, Europe. But the scientific revolution uh, owed a tremendous amount, actually, to the, uh, the development of industry in the cities. And actually, Engels makes the point that the, the, the sciences owe more to industry in a lot of cases than industry actually owes to the sciences. Yeah, I mean, you had, uh, you had new material provided uh, for the sciences by, for example, the discovery of, uh, of the polished lens, which led to the development of optics and at a later date, obviously, also the, the development of astronomy uh, and other fields. And uh, you had a lot of uh, you had a lot of uh, indirect um, effects upon the, the sciences by the discoveries in industry, such as, for example, a, a key turning point within human biology, within anatomy, was the, uh, the discovery of the printing press. Yeah, so I, I should say, sorry, the, the invention of the printing press in, in, in 15th century uh, Germany um, allowed for the first time uh, drawings of dissections to be printed in large numbers in textbooks extremely accurately, whereas previously they ha had to be copied by hand and therefore you had all sorts of, uh, of errors introduced um, into the, uh, the, the textbooks of Europe. Um, and uh, this led, for example, in the 16th century to the, uh, the, the great discovery by William Harvey of the circulation of blood and uh, other um, anatomical discoveries by people like Servetus, who was actually burnt at the stake by Calvin. Uh, so it wasn't just the Catholic Church that, uh, that, uh, that persecuted uh, scientists. So in its earliest form, science was essentially developed, however, in the, uh, the, the kind of immature shell of medieval scholasticism. And as long as it developed in that outmoded shell, it was always hampered in its development. Yeah, I mean, in the, in the words of Thomas Aquinas, um, philosophy, and therefore also natural philosophy, uh, was basically the handmaiden of theology. It served to glorify the greater good of, of God's creation, essentially. That's, what the, that's, that's the role that science played for the feudal epoch. Yeah, so it's only going to be by laying down a revolutionary challenge to the church and its domination over people's minds that science was really going to be set free. And eventually it broke out of that shell in a revolution which was actually begun by Copernicus from his deathbed uh, when he declared that the, uh, the earth itself moves. 20 minutes gone. Which uh, completely shattered the old feudal cosmology, which placed the earth at the centre of the universe, the centre of God's creation, and which said that the, the heavens were immortal, unchanging spheres of perfection, which is where God resided. It completely shattered that. It shattered an ideological prop of the feudal epoch. And the scientific revolution has to be thought of, basically, as part and parcel of the great bourgeois revolutions. And as being part of that, that, that wave of revolutions, uh, it also gave its fair share of, uh, or more than its fair share of, uh, of martyrs to the liberation of human minds from the, from the domination of the church and of mysticism. I mean, I've mentioned Servetus. Um, there's Galileo Galilei, who famously uh, suffered persecution his entire life for his adherence to Copernicanism. And others like Giordano Bruno were even burned at the stake by the, by the church. But once it was liberated from the shackles of theology, science began making gigantic strides forward. Uh, and this also had its effect on, on the predominant philosophy of the time. It began to affect the way that people saw the world and saw their relationship with the world. Um, so in England, this was reflected in the rise of uh, philosophical materialism represented by people like uh, Bacon, Locke and Hobbes. 
And when this materialism was once more imported into France, it became a revolutionary weapon in the hands of the, uh, the 18th century French materialists, who also brought science in to, to sort of to bolster that, that materialism, which they used against the old regime and everything it represented. And Engels described the scientific revolution um, as being part of the greatest progressive, sorry, excuse me. He described it as being part of the greatest progressive revolution that mankind has so far experienced. A time which called for giants and produced giants. Giants in power of thought, passion and character, in universality and learning. So I want to compare this picture now to the, uh, the picture of the sciences today. And I'm, I'm going to quote, um, unfortunately, a little bit at length from uh, an article in the Scientific American from November 2019. So just last year. It's by a long time contributor to that journal. And uh, it's called Jeffrey Epstein and the Decadence of Science. It's, uh, it's a long quote, but I don't think I could have painted more vividly the, the picture of the degree of science's uh, degeneration with the degeneration of bourgeois society itself. So he says, science, I fear, has entered its decadent phase. Signs of its decline abound. First, as I've pointed out, the productivity of applied science has slumped over the past few decades. Research effort is rising substantially, while research productivity is declining sharply. I mean, comrades will know we've talked uh, many times about how capitalism in general is suffering from a productivity crisis. He goes on. Then there is the replication crisis. The fact that many peer reviewed claims cannot be reproduced. Science has become less reliable because competition among researchers for publications, grants, tenure and other rewards has intensified. As researchers have a harder time generating useful results, they become increasingly desperate and prone to confirmation bias and fraud. And he then actually goes on to lament the fact that within the sciences, there has been a, a wholesale retreat from materialism. Now, materialism for us is, uh, yeah, I've already, I've already explained what materialism is, but in many ways, a um, consciously or unconsciously, materialism forms the philosophical basis of all genuine science and scientific investigation. Science is driven by the idea that there is a material world, it is independent to us, and it can be effectively investigated and understood. But this is how the article from, uh, from the Scientific American uh, describes the situation as far as that goes. He says, the so-called pure sciences aren't so pure either. Prominent physicists persist in promoting glitzy but unconfirmable ideas like string theory, inflation, multiverse theories, and the anthropic principle. S sorry. Um, <clears throat> the anthropic principle is basically the idea that the universe is. It's, it's an idea that's taken seriously in cosmology, that the universe is the way it is because we observe it. It's, it's a return to subjective idealism, basically. And uh, he goes on, in mind science, theorists advocate models based on quantum mechanics and information theory. 30 minutes gone. Please slow down for the translators. Thanks. Thank you. Sorry, translators. Uh, that make consciousness a fundamental component of reality. Like the anthropic principle, these mind-body theories reflect our narcissistic insistence that we are central to the cosmos. He then describes the, uh, the Epstein scandal, which involved numerous scientists in its, in its web. Um, you had scientists flocking to his parties and very eager to take research grants from Epstein. But he asks, is this really any worse than scientists taking money from the Pentagon or the Koch brothers or any other number of billionaires or, or corrupt uh, individuals or, or organizations? 
finally, although this guy is a science writer, he's not he's not a communist. Um, nevertheless, he invokes Marx. He invokes Karl Marx, our old friend. He says, in the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels acknowledged that capitalism had brought about extraordinary advances in the arts and sciences. But Marx prophesied that capitalism, by devaluing everything except profits, would inevitably self-destruct, dragging the rest of bourgeois culture down with it. So this is from the from the horse's mouth. This is this is not one of our articles. This is from the you know the, the science uh, writers themselves and, and popular science journalists. And it shows that the bourgeoisie are completely seeped in pessimism, basically. I mean, they no longer they no longer see a, a way forward and they've lost confidence in themselves. They've lost they've lost confidence in their system and they've uh, they've given up on the idea of progress. And as they've turned their back on the idea of progress, they've also turned their back on the idea of scientific progress. And their their retreat from reality has uh, has also been reflected in a retreat from reality in the sciences themselves. Although this, of course, only paints one half of the picture. I mean, there are plenty of sciences, uh, scientists, sorry. There are plenty of scientists who uh, who are fully aware of the, the crisis of capitalism and who are even fighting to overthrow capitalism. And there are many scientists who are engaged in one way or another and in one field or another in uh, in, 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 in a rearguard struggle against uh, the encroachment of mysticism and idealism. But this, uh, this crisis in the sciences shows why scientists themselves need a conscious philosophy, not only to guide them in the struggle against the encroachment of this mysticism, but also in order to sort of tie this struggle uh, for the preservation of the sciences, for the future of the sciences, to the revolutionary class in society, to the, the overthrow of capitalism and to the socialist revolution. Um, so it was uh, in Dialectics of Nature, um, Engels takes aim at the fact that for most scientists, um, most scientists don't have a conscious philosophy, actually. Um, yeah. And if you look at what passes for philosophy on university campuses, and even worse, what passes for the philosophy of science on university campuses, you can barely blame them when it's, uh, you know, postmodern garbage and, and this sort of stuff. Um, but despite the fact that people often regard scientists as these white lab coat wearing geniuses who are immune to the prejudices of the rest of society. Scientists are themselves very much human beings and they are just as likely to be infected with those prejudices as anyone else. And without a conscious philosophy, uh, scientists will simply take on board the scraps of philosophy that they find floating around in the society around them. And I'll, I'll just give you one example of where a popular and widespread prejudice which expresses itself crudely in society, pops up, but in a simply a more refined form within the sciences. I mean, um, most comrades will have heard at some point the argument when you say we need socialism. What about human nature? And in this question, in this question, the very posing of the question, whether it's conscious or not, is uh, exists a deep seated philosophical prejudice at the, at the base of it. It says that there is there is some permanent, unchanging human nature. And this isn't simply actually a statement about society. This is a statement about the sciences. It's a statement about our biology. 40 minutes gone. It, um, it imagines, first of all, that society itself is nothing more than the sum of its parts. Society is, is made up of a, a collection of human beings, a collection of human individuals. And the nature of that society is determined by the nature of the individuals. So the human nature determines the 
the, the social relations and everything else that we have around us. And the individual in turn is nothing more than the sum of their parts. They are nothing more than the direct expression of, of their genes and they are acting upon genetic necessity. So if we see war, racism, nationalism, the market economy, the domination of Amazon in society around us, these are presumably all to be found somewhere in our genetics. Um, but we, we understand as Marxists that this, the distinguishing feature of human beings as a species is that we don't simply take nature as it is. We, uh, we cultivate nature, we manipulate nature to serve our ends. This is precisely what sets us as human beings apart from the animal kingdom. But in the process of, uh, of, of, of satisfying our needs, we create new needs. We create new means of satisfying our needs. We create new social organizations, new modes of production, so that human society never has a finished form. And as materialists, understanding that it is it is material conditions that that form our consciousness by constantly changing our material conditions, our social organization. We're constantly changing our consciousness. We are constantly changing human nature. So our nature has gone through numerous uh, transformations. There was uh, there was a time when um, slavery in ancient Greece and ancient Rome would have been regarded just as natural as the, uh, the, the bourgeois economists regards the, the, the market economy today. And yet, despite what I've said, in, uh, in fields like sociobiology and evolutionary psychology, um, the human nature argument basically finds support from respected scientists. So just to give you uh, one quote from the, the so-called biologist Richard Dawkins, <laughs> this is from The Selfish Gene, uh, 1976, I think it was written. He says the following, he says, conceivably, racial prejudice could be interpreted as an irrational generalization of a kin selected tendency to identify with individuals physically resembling oneself and to be nasty to individuals different in appearance. I mean, um, I mean, this even a cursory sort of uh, familiarity with the history of racism and nationality would tell him that these these concepts of race and nation are as old as capitalism. They have not existed for the whole of human history, and yet here he finds a genetic basis for them. I think it, it hardly needs to be stated how reactionary actually the conclusions are which flow from this outlook, or how well it fits in, obviously, with the with the ideology of the ruling class, of the of the bourgeois, who, particularly since the collapse of the Soviet Union, have been going on an offensive against any idea that there is any other possible system other than capitalism. This system is the most natural system. It corresponds to the law of the jungle and it's essentially in our genes and therefore give up is the message. And in this, in this point of view, the, the bourgeois are expressing a philosophy of change that basically change itself is impossible or as is, as is more commonly the case these days, that change where it is possible is only possible in the form of decay, disintegration, backsliding. Uh, only bad things can happen from change. So Marxism, on, in, its, in the first instance, therefore, is first and foremost a philosophy of change and of, uh, of a method of analysing social and natural history. So contrary to the... The bourgeois philosophy, 
um, or the dominant philosophy. It, uh, it sees everything as being in a constant process of development. This is the method of dialectics I'm referring to, the philosophy of Marxism. It sees everything in a constant process of development and change. And in contrast to this uh, genetic um, reductionism, um, this very mechanical view of the world, it sees everything not as being simply uh, the sum of its parts, but is more than the sum of its parts. It sees things in their interconnection, that, that, that development takes place through, uh, through this sort of uh, constant process of the whole interconnected in its parts. 15 minutes gone. And this isn't, uh, this isn't an especially new idea. This was an idea that was known to the ancient Greeks um, and was summed up in the following way by uh, a guy called Heraclitus. Um, what he, he was known as Heraclitus the Dark because he, he wrote a lot of aphorisms and other things that were quite difficult to penetrate and understand. But I think the, other, the following aphorism makes sense when we reflect on it a little bit. <laughs> he says, everything both is and is not, for everything is in flux. Now, I think that's quite a, cur a curious statement. How can everything both be and not be at the same time? This defies what we would, I suppose, call common sense. Um, common sense says that everything either is or is not. I am me. Uh, I'm not not me. Uh, a pound of sugar is equal to a pound of sugar. And of course, human nature is human nature. But to give this common sense its, uh, its, its proper name, uh, what we would, we would call it formal logic, of course, it does have a certain applicability. I mean, I'm if my pound of sugar when I'm at the shop at the supermarket, I'm not going to argue with the checkout assistant if it's, uh, you know, a, a few grams under or a few grams over. But of course, on closer examination, we would see that that logic would break down. A pound of sugar is not simply a pound of sugar is never a pound of sugar, actually. Um, on closer examination, um, you will see the limits of these fixed categories. And modern biology in particular is uh, replete with examples of where fixed static categories um, completely break down. So for millennia, for example, um, common sense has told people that species are essentially static. Uh, one species is what it is. A dog is a dog, a cat is a cat, a bird is a bird. It should be said that the, the ancient Greeks had a pre-sentiment, actually, um, their thinking being informed by dialectics, that actually species probably weren't so static. Um, Anaximander, for example, I believe it was, uh, actually had a theory of evolution, and he suggested that human beings were descended from, uh, from fish, which was a, a correct anticipation. But, but of course, the, um, the ancient Greeks stood on a far lower technical level to us today, and uh, they didn't have the means of actually fleshing out this idea of dialectics with the scientific content, with all of the richness of the discoveries of science. They had only their minds, basically. To this was this was ingenious guesswork. The result, sorry, um, the result was that uh, dialectics was, for the most part, forgotten about for several millennia um, until it was rediscovered in the 18th and 19th centuries but now filled out with a far richer scientific content uh, by people like Hegel, Marx, and of course Engels in his Dialectics of Nature. So, sorry. So you can say that the, uh, the history of the dialectic itself, the history of science, has also followed the dialectical process of development. Let's go back to the question of evolution. 
I said that a bird is a bird, but in that case, what is an Archaeopteryx? Um, well, first of all, it's an extinct species that died off tens of millions of years ago. But uh, just to give you a few of its features, it was, uh, well, it had feathers and it could fly very much like uh, what we would think of as most birds, although, of course, not all birds can fly. Could probably fly, I guess. <laughs> but it had um, a bony tail and uh, a toothed jaw and even claws on its forelimbs, which uh, is quite unusual for a bird. So the, the question, was it a bird or was it a theropod dinosaur? There is no easy answer to that question. It both was and as was not a bird at the same time. I mean, the, the virus even defies the categorization into life or not life. I mean, it's, it's able to replicate, as we found to our cost in the recent period, very much like uh, life. But it has no independent uh, metabolism, unlike all other, all, all other life forms. So in a sense, it both is and is not life at the same time. It is a contradiction. And dialectics resolves this by saying that precisely contradiction is, uh, is, is part of motion. When you see things in their motion, contradiction is a part of existence. It doesn't try to eliminate contradiction, contradiction in that sense. <clears throat> One hour gone, 40 minutes left. Thank you. Individual organisms, uh, species and groups of species are precisely coming into existence and going out of existence. And in, their ch and in its change, matter is, is, is constantly in a, process of in, in a process of change. Nothing is fixed and uh, nothing is permanent. In fact, the simplest form of motion from A to B is precisely contradiction. Um, motion itself implies that something both is and is not in the same place at the same time. Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection was precisely the discovery of the operation of dialectics in organic nature, in the history of life. And the whole theory bases itself, actually, on the reality of contradiction in nature. I mean, one of its pillars is the idea of inheritance, that uh, an organism, an offspring, looks like its parents and inherits the characteristics and features of its parents. But contradicting this uh, tendency is the tendency towards natural variation. Um, offspring uh, diverge as well from their parents. And if both of these opposing uh, tendencies, these contradictory tendencies, didn't form a unity, there would be no such thing as evolution. If inheritance dominated so that each generation looked exactly like its parents, the evolution would obviously stop. And in fact, before the evolution of uh, sexual reproduction, Asexual reproduction tends to be far more dominated by inheritance and therefore evolution was a very slow process. And of course, if the, the opposing tendency of variation was the only tendency that existed, then you could have no viable embryo. Um, you would have a, simply a, a miscarriage. Yeah, and I, I think that, I mean, we can describe Darwinian evolution as probably confirming the most fundamental law of dialectics, which I would say is the, the transformation of quantity into quality and vice versa. And I would say yeah, at first glance, of course, this natural variation that we see in nature, of course, is, uh, is, is first and foremost quantitative. Um, fur is darker or lighter, claws are longer or shorter, uh, the femur is heavier or lighter, and, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> But uh, after, by, after, after a number of generations, of course, 
you have this accumulation of quantitative changes that, uh, that lead to a point where a population is no longer able to interbreed with the, uh, the, prop, the, the population from which it descended. You have speciation, two separate species emerge. In the language of dialectics, we would say that quantity has transformed into quality. A revolution has taken place. But um, Darwin was also uh, a product of his, of his time, just like the most mediocre scientists, also the, the greatest scientists are also uh, affected by the, the philosophies and the ideas which predominate in their time. Now, uh, Darwin imagines this process of evolution as taking place in a slow, gradualistic manner. Um, you have the slow, gradualistic emergence of species, like the, the slow emergence of, of, of branches from the, the trunk of a tree. <clears throat> and uh, this reflected the prejudices of, uh, of his time that Darwin was living in, specifically the gradualistic reformist prejudices of the English middle class in the 19th century. So yes, you can have uh, you can have change in nature, but there are no leaps, there are no uh, discontinuities. <clears throat> the, the problem for Darwin was that uh, actual actually the discoveries of paleontology and the fossil records didn't actually bear out this view of the world. There are all sorts of gaps in the fossil record. Now, for the most part, um, Darwin believed that this was uh, and there's an element of truth in this. He thought this was due to the incompleteness of of the fossil record. Only a certain number of complete skeletons are are preserved and only a certain number have been discovered, but that over time we will make discoveries that will fill in the gaps. 70 minutes, 30 minutes left. However, there was, there was one event in particular in the fossil records, which, uh, which was uh, so uh, sudden and revolutionary that it, it that, that conflicted so violently with Darwin's theory that he even held it up as a legitimate counter argument to his entire theory of evolution. And what this was, was if you go back more than 550 million years ago, the only fossils that exist in a, any great number are what we call stromatolites. Yeah. And, um, and these are basically uh, big mats of algae, of single-celled organisms that, that formed big blobs, basically, mm -hmm. all throughout the, the coastal areas and the, the shallow oceans of, the, the sort of, of, of this period. And then... Um, yeah, sometime around uh, 550 million years ago, um, there was a, a, something happened that caused a, an, an explosion of complex multicellular animal life, almost out of, in an instant in geological terms. Um, the, the creatures which were given names like uh, hallucinogenia because they look like the product of like a hallucination. They are so weird and wonderful. Some of these look like alien creatures. But the, the, the speed with which they, they took, they, they evolved was phenomenal. In one layer of rock, there's nothing like this. In the next layer of rock, complex multicellular life all over the world's oceans. And uh, in, it wasn't until the mid 20th century that two scientists, uh, Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Elridge, actually came up with a hypothesis to explain this, uh, this sudden appearance, the, 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 a new model of evolution. That, would, that also explains this uh, Cambrian explosion, as it has come to be known. And they started out because they understood that when you're studying the evolution of vertebrates, the fossils, all the bones get mixed up. You very rarely find large numbers of preserved vertebrates. So they looked at trilobites instead. I believe it was trilobites. Yeah, these trilobites, they exist all over the, all over the planet for tens of millions of years. And what they found is that, uh, sorry, what they found is in, in layers of rock for tens of millions of years, they all look the same. 
And then suddenly there's a point in the rock after which there's an adaptation and now all of them look the same again, but there's no continuity, a complete discontinuity between the, uh, the, 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 what came before and what came after. And to explain this, uh, Gould and Elridge uh, basically came up with a new theory of evolution, um, according to which for the majority of their existence, uh, species actually remained outwardly fairly unchanged. They remain in a certain equilibrium. Equilibrium does exist in nature. However, equilibrium, and we understand this in dialectics, exists only within limits. And there are, uh, it doesn't mean that there is no change. There was change going on within ecosystems, geographical changes, climactic changes, genetic changes. Yeah, and these, uh, these changes accumulate, eventually reaching a tipping point when this equilibrium is punctuated by the sudden appearance of adaptations, by sudden extinctions, mass extinctions, and acts of speciation. And the whole history of, of, uh, of life, in fact, is a history of such revolutions. Long periods of nothing much happening, and then sudden uh, discontinuities, catastrophes, crises, revolutions. In fact, the origins of, uh, of life itself only became possible when a, a quantity transformed into quality, when a tipping point was reached, at which uh, the cooling earth was able to support uh, liquid water and a complex chemistry was able to emerge. Excuse me. The earth was obviously um, far hotter at that time and ultraviolet waves were able to get straight through the atmosphere because there was no oxygen and no ozone either. But this created a very rich chemistry. 80 minutes gone, 20 minutes left. And at a certain, uh, at a certain stage, this would have uh, included complex sets of uh, self-sustaining, self-replicating chemical reactions. Um, the first elements of life, although it would have looked nothing like life as we, as we understand it today, of course. <clears throat> And you would have probably had huge, a huge length of time before these reactions were contained in the most primitive uh, cell membrane. <clears throat> and uh, although this environment would have been very hostile for us, uh, some of the most primitive life, like uh, cyanobacteria or blue-green algae, um, would, have been, would have preferred the fact that there was no oxygen, actually, because oxygen was a poison for these tiny little organisms. But... Um, yeah, and in fact, these blue-green algae would have uh, produced oxygen as a waste product. And as they spread across the globe, the levels of oxygen began to, to rise. And a point was reached, again, where quantity was transformed into quality. There was a crisis, a mass poisoning, and the, the world's first uh, mass extinction. But it was, it was out of this mass extinction, which threw life backwards, that, was, that space was created and the necessity was created for the evolution of more complex life forms, which were able to actually use oxygen, our own ancestors. <laughs> so life has, life has gone through many of these revolutions, but it's not a straight line. Evolution has always been punctuated by tremendous setbacks. Through crises, you have had advances in the complexity of life. And out of these more complex uh, single cellular life forms, eventually 550 million years ago, uh, a new um, a tipping point was reached and you had the explosion of multicellular animal life. And uh, among these uh, first multicellular animals was uh, a little creature which wouldn't have looked like much. It looked something between a worm and a fish. Uh, these were the class of creatures called the chordata. 
Um, and these uh, these creatures, although unassuming, they had a body plan unlike other multicellular life forms in that their whole body was organized around the central nervous system with a uh, what would become the primitive spinal cord at its center and the head at it, uh, um, a primitive head and brain at, uh, at one end. And um, yeah, here nerves would have uh, ceased to simply transmit information from the sense organs to the primitive reflexes. Rather, they would have started to make connections with themselves. These creatures eventually begin reflecting upon the world around them. And that obviously came with certain evolutionary advantages. <laughs> and over time, the, the brain became larger and larger, finding its, its highest expression amongst the, the mammals. And of course, our ancestors, the, the great apes, which um, at some point, five million years ago, we would have uh, begun the process of descending from, from the great apes. And uh, finally, yeah, as I say, in, in East Africa, uh, somewhere uh, uh, five million years ago, a small band of these, uh, these apes would have descended from their, their forest environment and tried to make their life out on the grasslands. And living in the grasslands, they had to adopt an upright posture, which of course freed up uh, their hands for other uses. And through transforming the world uh, through primitive labor, um, our earliest ancestors evolved more and more nimble hands capable of more and more precise operations. And evolving alongside that, they developed the need for communication and abstract thought in order to communicate their ideas, to develop, to change the world in their minds before they then change it in nature. And this was actually a fact that was uh, a hypothesis that Engels himself independently developed in a fantastic little article, which is part of Dialectics of Nature, called On the Part Played by Labour in the Transition from Ape to Man. 90 minutes gone, 10 minutes left. But uh, despite um, Engels' brilliant um, hypothesis, um, the archaeological uh, community essentially continued to labour under the false idea that the decisive step in the direction of the evolution of humankind was actually not the upright stance, but was the evolution of the brain. That, that came first. Um, it was only um, decades after Engel's death that this correctness of, of, of uh, his position was recognized, something which Stephen Jay Gould himself recognized as a, as a, as a brilliant uh, um, hypothesis. I think this is a, a small example of how an incorrect philosophy can actually waylay the path of science in a, in a certain direction. And as, as Engels explains, with the evolution of, of humankind, we enter the realm of history proper. Um, the growing complexity of, uh, of, of human society, the bringing under control of one natural force after another, and the transmission of that knowledge via human culture has to a certain extent supplanted genetic evolution something that, of course, the genetic uh, reductionists that I mentioned previously failed to understand. And yet, to, to what extent have we really succeeded in, in raising ourselves above the, uh, the natural world as a species? On, under capitalism, we are um, emitting carbon dioxide with the, uh, the uh, same apparent lack of control that blue-green algae were emitting oxygen two and a half billion years ago into the atmosphere. And if we're not lucky, with potentially the same results as well. And, and despite the fact that we're, we're able to send a man into space, we're able to analyze and decode our own genome, 
our entire civilization has been brought to its knees by the most primitive of organisms, the, uh, the virus. Uh, I mean, of course, we, through the discoveries of natural science, know how to stop both of these catastrophes in, in their tracks from, a, from a, a natural point of view, from a scientific point of view. Five the only, left. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we have the material means to do so. The only barrier is the, uh, our social organization, um, the, the domination of the market, which appears to rule over us like uh, an unstoppable force of nature. But um, Marx's theory has precisely revealed the dialectic of human development in the same way that Darwin revealed the dialectic of, uh, of, of, of organic life. And in its, in its revolutionary method, Marxism, of course, equips us with the, the tools to solve the problem, too. So I'll just finally end with a, a little quote from Engels himself. And it's 200th birthday, nearly. <laughs> so he says, uh, only conscious organization of social production in which production and distribution are carried out in a planned way can lift mankind above the rest of the animal world as regards the social aspect. In the same way that production in general has done this for mankind in the specific biological aspect. Historical evolution makes such an organization daily more indispensable, but also with every day more possible. From it will date a new epoch of history in which mankind itself and with mankind all branches of its activity, and particularly natural science, will experience an advance that will put everything preceding it in the deepest shade. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.